Reading Horizons supports educators with powerful tech-enabled foundational reading instruction that helps all students reach reading proficiency by the end of third grade. For nearly 40 years, Reading Horizons method has aligned with the evolution of the science of reading, empowering over 50,000 educators with evidence-based teaching strategies that prevent and remediate students' reading difficulties. Reading momentum begins with Reading Horizons. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teaching, Reading, and Learning, the TRL podcast. I'm Laura Stewart, your host. The focus of this podcast is to elevate important contributions and contributors in education in order to celebrate, inspire, and inform all of us in this community. My guest today is Dr. Janine Heron. Janine has led a remarkable life. She is an accomplished neurobiologist, educator, research psychologist, software developer, author, and entrepreneur. She has truly done it all. And in this episode, you'll learn many things. You'll learn about her involvement in the civil rights movement and how that led to her directing the first Head Start program. You'll learn about her family's year and a half sailing journey to West Africa, her groundbreaking research, and you'll learn about her current work because she continues her relentless devotion to the cause of literacy for all. And her greatest hope is a literacy revolution. This episode is a fascinating look at a fascinating life. Now, please note, for those of you watching this podcast on YouTube, there's going to be a camera angle missing, but it will not get in the way of this terrific conversation with the one and only Janine Heron. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Janine, to the podcast. Hi, Laura. Nice to see you. It's so great to see you. You know, I just have to ask you, I know this is a little off the topic, but I noticed that beautiful necklace that you're wearing. Could you tell me about that? Oh, okay. Um, well, the, the glass in this necklace is glass from the stained glass window of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham which was bombed and where three kids, girls were killed. We were there before, three weeks before the bombing and attended church in that church. And I took my daughter down to the bathroom, which was destroyed in that bombing. And so when we came back for the funeral, I picked up some pieces of glass from the street and my father made this necklace for me. Oh, Janine, that's so special. And we're, we're you know, what, we will be talking about your involvement uh, in the civil rights movement in today's podcast. So, oh, how lovely, how lovely. So, Janine, I, I just want to start by asking you a question that I ask other guests. Um, what is a quote that you live by and that you return to? Oh, um, well, I guess there would be two. One one relates to our work and that is by E.M. Forrester who said, how do I know what I think until I see what I write? And that really got me thinking about writing and how important writing is to our thinking and the fact that we need to go back and 
um, look at our writing and clarify our thinking as we clarify the writing anyway. That's one quote. And then a quote that I would live by, um, I guess it would be do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, it's, the, it's the main premise of all the world's religions, which have gotten distorted by crusades, jihads, and a lot of magical thinking. But I think that's the essence of what really The golden is. rule. Mm -hmm. that, that's interesting you mentioned that because um, when my kids were little, there was a, it, it might have even been like a Dear Abby or an Ann Landers column. And some of our listeners won't even know what I'm talking about, but it was maybe from the local paper. And it was where they had taken that basic idea of the golden rule and shown how it shows up in all major world religions in different wording, but it's essentially the golden rule. So yeah, it's, it's right. Yeah. Core, <laughs> core. Um, so Janine, you have led a remarkable life. Um, you have been a teacher, an activist, a research scientist, an adventurer, an editor, a writer, a developer. Um, so I really want our listeners to kind of start, just listen, just hear about your extraordinary journey. So I want to go back to, you know, where you began your teaching career, who was influential in your life, and then kind of go forward from there. So let's start with that. Oh, my goodness. Okay. My teaching career began in Ramallah, which was in the West Bank now, but it was in Jordan at that time in 1956. Um, I was on a tour with my professor from Whittier College. I was <clears throat> between my junior and senior year at Whittier. I was 19 years old. And um, a, a, we stayed at a Quaker school. Whittier was a Quaker school. I, we stayed in a Quaker school in Ramallah. And um, they had just lost one of their teachers. And so the principal of the girls' school asked my professor if he knew of somebody who might be willing to stay and teach in our group. And he suggested me. And the long story, this is make the long story short, I stayed. I was supposed to, uh, he telegraphed my parents and tried to reassure them. And um, they, because they needed to send their permission, right? So um, they sent their message to Tel Aviv, which was across the border from uh, the West Bank. And um, so I never got it. And their answer was no, she shouldn't stay. She's too young. But I made the decision on my own to stay. And it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Well, because I, I got very involved in teaching. I really loved teaching the girls. And also I met my husband and we were married the very next few months in Beirut. We were evacuated out because of the Suez War. And so we had to hang out in Beirut waiting to see what would happen. And we decided to be married and um, came home. Uh, not too long after that because of the strife that was going on and because 
it turned out I was pregnant. <laughs> so it was time to come home. It's time to come home. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Matt um, in today's podcast as well. Um, so in, who's been influential to you in your life, Janine? Oh, my goodness. In terms, well, first of all, my mother and father, of course. Um, my father was a pacifist in the First World War. I was raised as a Quaker, and um, he had very, very clear ideas about what was right and what was wrong. Um, so, and he was kind of a Renaissance guy. He could build things. He was a teacher. My mother and father were both teachers. So that was a big influence on my life. Um, yeah, and in terms of, uh, in terms of my professional evolution, um, I think the first big influence on my life was Norman Geshwin. Was a neurologist in Boston. In 1965, I was a student at um, Tulane Medical School getting my PhD, and uh, he wrote a, a paper called Disconnection Theory in Animals, Disconnection Syn Syndromes in Animals and Man. And it was a blockbuster. It changed. It changed so much, and uh, I don't know how I got it or why I read it, but it, it really hit me. And so I invited, I, we, had a, we had a speaking program at the uh, university, at the medical school, and I um, put in his name as, to come as a speaker. And he came to New Orleans, to Tulane, and um, I caught him in the hall and I said, and I was already interested in dyslexia. This is 1965. Um, and I said, uh, do you think dyslexia is a disconnection syndrome? And he said, I don't know anything about dyslexia, but I'll look into it. <laughs> and of course, he became very influential in his work uh, in dyslexia. Um, so, so, so you, I, so you prompted him in that direction by asking that question. Maybe, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? But it, anyway, so Norman Geshwin, and then um, also Marion Diamond. Marion Diamond was right here. I'm in the Bay Area, and uh, she was at Berkeley, and she did such. Uh, another blockbuster paper of uh, work on plasticity in the brain. And she showed that an enriched environment actually changed the brain physically. And that was the first evidence that we had at that time that um, the environment changed the brain physically. Um, oh, there were so many. You know, at that time, I don't know if you want to get into this, but. Um, early in the whole discussion. I was so lucky to be at the moment when we were really discovering so much about the brain and there was such an exploration. Um, you know, there were the first split brain experiments and I knew the surgeon who did the first split brain, Joe Bogan. And um, after that, we began to realize that the two sides of the brain did different things. 
and <laughs> it was just a whole scramble to find out what was happening in the two sides of the brain and how things could get disconnected. And, um, it was a time when um, psychiatry and neurology didn't talk to each other. I did my PhD work at, I mean, my postdoc work at UC San Francisco, and uh, it was in the psychiatry department. And there was really not much thinking about how the brain related to behavior. And there was no word neuropsychology. So, <laughs> so that was right at the beginning of everything. And it was, it was very exciting. When so I was this, so Janine, can I, can I just ask you a quick question? So this is, you moved from Tulane to back up to, and then you started this work in Stanford as a neuropsychologist. Well, um, well, this is what happened. Um, my advisor, my PhD advisor at Tulane was Larry Pinio. He was doing very interesting work in the lab with EEG, evil potential with animals, um, trying to stimulate brain. And um, he also had some chimps across the, the Lake Poncha train at the Delta Primate Center that I got to play with. Um, but anyway, he got trans he got a grant to come to Stanford Inst Research Institute and he moved and he said, gee, I'm really sorry I can't be here at Tulane to help you finish your PhD. <laughs> and he said, but if you could take a year off uh, by the time by that time, I would have money and establish myself at Stanford Research Institute and you could come out there and finish with me. So I said, okay, and that's when we took our trip to Africa. And, uh, and so I came and did my, my PhD dissertation there at Stanford Research Institute. And from there, I went to UC San Francisco and did the postdoc. Right, God. Okay, so just I'm trying to get a sense of time here. Um, so was this, was this before or was this after you directed that Head Start project? That was after. So let's go back to that then. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your involvement, yours and Matt involvement, Matt's involvement in the civil rights movement and how that led to your um, Head Start project. Could you tell, tell our listeners about that. That's an interesting chapter. As a young married couple, we were living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We were doing uh, a lot of work with the peace movement because we both believed, Matt was also a conscientious objector in the Korean War. We both believed in nonviolence. We had studied a lot of Gandhi and uh, works about nonviolence. And um, we became very interested in what was happening in the South. We were just trying to stop nuclear testing and that sort of thing. I belonged to a group called Women's Strike for Peace. And we did all kinds of very creative things. Like we collected baby teeth from the tooth fairy around the country <laughs> to, to, um, to establish the fact that strontium 90 from nuclear testing was coming down into the grass. The cows were eating the grass and the milk was getting into our children's teeth, strontium 90. So, um, so that was a very influential, influential way of, of trying to stop nuclear testing in the atmosphere. And we also went to Geneva and, disarm, and the disarmament conference there with 
Coretta King and some other notable people to try to lobby at the nuclear disarmament conference. Anyway, I was involved in the peace movement. And uh, one of my friends in that group called me in the middle of the night one night and said, Janine, some, I'm in Jackson, Mississippi, and a man has been shot. And I think people from the north need to come down here and um, be aware of what's happening in the south. So I flew down. I, I walked in Medgar Evers' funeral, and I stayed with people at Tougaloo College right outside of Jackson, which was a place where um, it was a black college, but there it was integrated, and there was a, a white Chapman and his chaplain and his wife who took us in, uh, took me in, and um, and anyway, eventually, in about three months, we decided to move to Jackson because my husband was a photojournalist and wanted to photograph the changes in the South. He had been very influenced by Dorothea Lang and the work of the farm security photographers, and he thought of himself as a documentarian. So uh, so we moved to the South and that's how we got involved. That's so interesting. And then, so then, then from there you went to Stanford. Yes, um, yes. I, In between then you took the, the trip. Yes. Okay, tell, we have to hear about that. Well, first of all, to go back, I just wanted to honor Matt in his photojournalism work. I mean, I know he was a very influential and renowned photojournalist in the civil rights movement. So just to, to give praise to, to Matt Heron. Um, yeah, yeah, he was a special man, wasn't he? He was, he was an extraordinary man. And uh, the, the reason that decision to stay at Ramallah was so important to me is because I got to spend the rest of my life with him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Almost the rest of my life. <laughs> you bet. Yep, you bet. Um, so then, but then you and Matt and your two young children, now by this point, decided to take a sailing trip to West Africa. Do I have that right? Yes. Well, that was the year that Larry Pinio told me I needed to take off. Take off, yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Wait to come to California. So we had moved from. Um, Mississippi. There are lots of adventures I could tell you about there. But anyway, we moved from Mississippi to New Orleans. And um, that's when I got uh, in, involved at uh, Tulane Medical School. And from New Orleans, we sailed a 30-foot sloop with our kids from New Orleans to West Africa and down the coast of West Africa for uh, a year and a half. And we did a book uh, we did a book about getting ready for the journey, um, and we wrote, and we did a book called um, Our Big Blue Schoolhouse, not the Little Red Schoolhouse, but Our Big Blue Schoolhouse, and that was actually the log written by my 13-year-old son as we went down the coast of West Africa. And it's really about how we educated the kids at sea. It was our attempt to do um, home home learning. <laughs> yeah. So, so Janine, so um, how old were your kids at this time? Uh, Melissa was eleven, and Matthew was thirteen. 
Okay, so you basically they were they were educated on your on your sailing trip, and he wrote he wrote the book about that called the Big Blue Schoolhouse, and then didn't you write a book called Journey of the Aquarius, which was the name yes. of your boat? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> and that was that was mostly about getting ready and the crossing, which took twenty six days from Bermuda to the Azores. Um, but we had lots of adventures on the way. It was really oh, Janine. What um, what uh, now? You you were going to take this gap year, so to speak. What what inspired you to do that with the year that you had, like to take a sailing boat to West Africa? Well, we um, we of course have been involved in the civil rights movement, and everybody was talking about their roots in Africa and so on, and also. Um, my husband was a total adventurer and he he said let's do something other people haven't done i mean we we could go to the uh well we were in new orleans so we couldn't very easily go into the pacific so um he said let's what about africa and we talked about it and said well yeah yeah why not <laughs> did you did you know what you were doing i mean did you know how to sail no. or did you have to like no, start you had, you had to like not. start from scratch and learn we everything very, we were very young and um uh but but we did a lot of talking to people we talked to um friends in new orleans who were good sailors and um actually our dear friend bill seaman sailed with us from florida to the to bermuda and matt and bill navigated on the way of course we didn't have a lot of we didn't have any gps or anything like that so we used a sextant and we dragged it we, we dragged a thing behind the the boat to tell us what our speed was you know that's the word, way the word that's how the word um, knots came into business in, into our language um, because when you throw this thing in the back of the boat, it's tied to a rope that has knots in it. And as it goes, as you let the rope out, you count the knots. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love it. I love the origin of words like that. I love that. You And you do love that. I know you love that. Yeah. <laughs> that is fascinating. Who knew? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, okay. So after that, and we could, we could spend the whole podcast, I'm sure talking about that adventure, but I want to get to your, I want to get to your scholarly work and your research. Um, so I know you were at, at um, UCSF doing research, but then you left and established a nonprofit called the California Neuropsychology Services. Do I have yeah. that right? Yes. At UCSF, there were 10 years where we did dyslexia research with dyslexia EEG. research and what were the what what kind of research did you actually do what were you involved in we were looking at what side of the brain um the kids were using we were i was very influenced by orton's work and um and we of course were intrigued with the two hemispheres of the brain so first we looked at the difference in um how what we got in the EEG when people were doing a, a verbal task, a speaking or reading, uh, compared to a spatial task, because it, we already knew that the two hemispheres were um, organized like that. But we wanted to, to make sure that our measure really worked. So we did it with right-handers and left-handers to see, see if we really showed a difference between right-handers and left-handers. 
So that's how I got involved with left-handers and did a book called The Neuropsychology of Left-Handedness, an edited book. Um, anyway, and then we got into dyslexia and did that for 10 years. And I was really hoping that we would find the answer and there would be a very uh, clear way of dealing with dyslexia after that. And of course, um, we were dealing with very weak tools. And the EEG is, is helpful, but it's nothing like what, if we had an MRI or a MEG system. Um, anyway, so we didn't, and, a, and a, a mother of one of the dyslexic kids said, Janine, I've been coming back here. <laughs> I've been coming back here for the last eight years and my kids still can't read. Um, and I realized that maybe I needed to do something more practical um, and get my feet wet in the actual education system. So I started California Neuropsychology Services. We did, it was a nonprofit. I got grants from various um, uh, foundations. And then I also gave conferences around the country because I realized that um, this was a very new field. Neuropsychology was a very new field. Uh, professionals in the field, even psychiatrists and psychologists and teachers and uh, all kinds of professionals needed information about the relationship between the brain and behavior. So we gave 50 three-day conferences around the country. Uh, and because I was doing that, I got to meet all these giants in the field, you know, like Marion Diamond and like Norman. I took Norman Geshwin sailing on, on San Francisco Bay and, and Marion and David Hubel, who did such seminal work in uh, uh, outlining the visual system and showed the relationship between the development of the visual system and, and motor, you know, with cats. Anyway, uh, it was fascinating to be able to meet those people and, uh, and hear what they were passionate about. So Janine, was that, was that the main work of the um, California Neuropsychology Services was to hold these conferences to teach people about neuropsychology, about the, the behavior, the, the relationship between behavior and the brain? Was that the, the focus of the work or were there also services to children? What was the there main focus? No, there weren't services, but we did research in schools. So the, the conferences really funded what, what I wanted to do, which was get my feet in the classroom. And that's when I began to see that, um, you know, I could be I could be a professional who talked directly to people, teachers or to kids, but that if I got interested in this very new field with computers, um, maybe I could influence more people. So I started to think about a computer program that kids could use to learn to read. And that's when I developed the first program, which was for the Apple IIe. And I needed to have speech with it, so we devised a way to um, Velcro a, a tape recorder to the side of the computer. I mean, we did all kinds of things. But um, anyway, that evolved. Uh, and we got a grant from the Knight Foundation um, and the Los Altos schools. 
Los Altos is um, in the peninsula the south of San Francisco. And um, this grant paid for a writing coach, a writing teacher, to circulate among all six of the Los Altos district schools. And she turned their computer labs, which had Apple IIe computers, into writing labs. And she herself was a poet. I mean, I learned so much from Marge Rechef. Um, anyway, uh, that was an adventure. And we started the, the very beginnings of read, write, and type. And the kids used paper keyboards to um, learn how to use their fingers on the keyboard. And she would, she would come into a group that had been using it for a while, maybe um, a, a late sec first grade or early second grade, and she would bring a whole bag of um, shoes, boots, and ballet slippers, and all kinds of shoes, and she'd plunk it on the table, and she'd tell the children to pick one, and then she said, we're going to write about who you thought might wear these shoes. So she did such creative things like that. And she would tell teachers, look, don't do your prep work while your kids are in the computer lab. Go in there because this is your opportunity to see what they're thinking. And you look on the screen and if they're writing, you can provide a little, um, you know, mini lesson uh, in having a conversation with them about what they're writing. Oh, maybe this needs to be a new paragraph, or maybe this, maybe I'm not quite clear about what you're saying here, or, you know, so she would interact with kids as she walked around the classroom, and she encouraged teachers to do the same thing. And the, the beauty, the thing that grabbed me about computers was that you can give kids feedback. It's very hard to know what a kid is thinking when they're reading something. You know, it's totally transparent and vague. It's very hard. And we deal a lot with that with our <laughs> discussions about assessments. But with writing, you can see it right there. You know, if they're trying to spell out a word and they're, they're using some phoneme incorrectly, uh, linking it to wrong letters or whatever, you can give them feedback right away. And the computer can do it automatically. So with read, write, and type, we we factored in both visual so they could see hands come up on the keyboard and show them visually what letter uh, and that was always the sound of the letter type or type a type t. Um, and then they could also hear it so they were getting visual and auditory feedback for every mistake they might make and so they could just over and over and over again be developing phoneme awareness and phonics as they actually physically constructed words. So Janine, did that, um, I have so many questions on that. So first of all, did, is this, is, was this one of the um, Small Business Innovation Research Awards that you won to start this? No, that was before that. The, these, the, that, the Apple II stuff was all funded by grants. Got it. Okay, but you did you did receive you did receive several um, SBIR awards from the NICHD, and that's really how I had to transform myself from California Neuropsychology Services, which was a nonprofit, to um, Talking Fingers, which was a for-profit because 
Small business innovative research grants are only given to for-profits. So, and what you have to do is you have to develop a product and do research with it, which is exactly what I wanted to do. So I got into it not to not to create a business, <laughs> but to do what I wanted to do. But that was the way. I yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I want to I want to um, I want to quote you here something you said about this whole thing. You said, "I want to way I want to change the way kids learn." Parents and teachers need to understand that reading and writing go hand in hand. In fact, I think writing is the most powerful, the most active, and the most interesting way to become fluent at reading. Students often see writing as a chore. They have so many things to say, but the mechanics of writing slows them down and stifles their enthusiasm. So was that kind of some underlying foundational principles that really drove you to work on read, write, and type, work, you know, do talking fingers? Was that some of your thoughts around that? Exactly, exactly. I came across a book by Ramalda Spaulding called The Writing Road to Reading. And she just made a lot of sense to me. And she gave me kind of a framework for how to put read, write, and type together. Um, I realized that kids needed, little kids needed it to be as simple as possible. So rather than teach them a whole variety of ways to represent a sound, Read, write, and type just teaches one way. And if they have one way to re represent every one of the 44 sounds in English, they can write whatever they can say. They may not spell everything perfectly, but they um, can write phonetically, or um, as some people say, invented spelling. And, uh, and, and by doing that, they are over and over again developing a deep, and automatic phonemic awareness. And that's the brain work that we have to do in order to be skilled readers. Um, we, cannot, we cannot become skilled readers just with our eyes and our ears. We have to develop, we have to change the motor system. And I can talk about that later if you want. Yes, yes. I do wanna ask you, I do wanna ask you though, like I think about, um, all the pieces we've talked about so far. So how was your deep involvement and commitment to equality and the civil rights movement? How did that funnel into this work of developing these, these writing products? Was there like a sense of access for children? Was there a sense of- Access for everybody. And of course, as soon as the internet came in, it became much easier to make a wider distribution and um, that was my hope to be able to to make it available to all children no matter what they look like or what they believe or what their culture was yeah and it, 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 it has voiceover help in nine different languages so it's been used a lot as um, ESL program even with older kids even with adults it's been used uh, janine um you mentioned like early on you were interested in dyslexia what what was the prompt for that what was the thing that really got you interested in that oh well <clears throat> in philadelphia i got interested in it because of an organization called the uh, institute for the achievement of human potential which my husband did a story about uh, so I got involved there and I studied some with 
Glendoman, and I realized that that was not really my calling, but it 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 provided me with some information. And then when we went to Mississippi, uh, the first the first year, 1964, I worked with SNCC, um, out, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. <clears throat> outside of we lived uh, I lived outside of Atlanta while Matt was on the road photographing and I worked in the SNCC office in Atlanta and then um, later that year I got uh, connected with two other people who wanted to uh, one was Polly Greenberg and she worked in the um, office of economic opportunity and this was a new place federal place that was interested in starting head starts so as a result, we wrote a grant to um, the Office of Economic Opportunity and started the first Head Start in the country in Mississippi. Um, and we had several thousand kids around the state because we were working with the civil rights movement who had contacts in all these little towns and communities. And um, <clears throat> anyway, that was quite extraordinary. But, you asked how I got interested in dyslexia and one day I was um, in one of the Head Start projects and there was a little girl sitting on the sideline kind of watching everybody else and so I went and sat next to her. She reached out to feel my hair because she never really sat next to a white person that she could try that with. And, um, and uh, so we talked a bit and then I said, what? What, what, do you, what would you like to do in Head Start? And she thought for a minute and she drew herself up and she said, I'm going to learn to read and write and then I'm going to go home and teach my daddy. And that, that really kind of hit home how many people didn't know how to read and write, how important reading and writing is to our culture. I mean, Oh, we could talk about that. Look what's happening right now. Uh, we need our our culture. Our culture is facing a dark time, I think, in terms of the intelligence of American communities. And um, we we who are involved in reading are really on a bigger mission than we really know because we need to raise the entire intelligence of America. And we can do that if we, if we taught children to read. Anyway. You know, Janine, uh, yesterday, I was, yesterday I was speaking with um, an, another podcast guest, Dr. Anthony, Dr. Sean Anthony Robinson, and um, he was telling his life story, and I'm sure he won't mind me sharing it because he shared it on the podcast, um, but his life story, you know, he, he was a non-reader, um, he was an undiagnosed dyslexic, and, you know, he, he, had, he struggled in all areas of his life when he finally learned to read, when somebody finally took the time to literally just teach him, you know, here's the sounds, here's the, how the sounds map to print, here's how this whole thing works. It was like, you know, it opened up the world to him, and he is very emotional about it and he talks about this this professor who taught him to read and he said he saved my life he saved my life yeah yeah that's that's it's, how important it's, this is it's mm -hmm. so important 
And we need to change individual lives and we need to change our whole culture. We are, our educational system is inadequate and we need to, we need to have a literacy revolution the way they did in Cuba in 1961, where they sent young people into the mountains. They, thousands and thousands, Fidel Castro said, we're gonna change um, our literacy. And, and these kids went into the mountains, they lived with families, they milked cows, and these were urban kids. And we, we need to do the same. We need to have a total, a total involvement in um, educating our young people, our young children. Uh, and we could do it if we just wanted to make that investment. We could have a domestic um, Peace Corps, right? Literacy Corps, and uh, and just have the vision of changing things. That's what we need to do. Anyway. What's our, what's our, what I know we could, Janine, what's our, what, what, what's our, what's our, what's our first step in that, Janine? What, what, what are, what are we getting wrong? And, and what's our first step to write that? Oh my goodness. Well, I, it, it's not that we're getting wrong, but we're spending, we're, we're investing a lot in intervention at later years, which is much harder than preventing the problem from happening in the first place. And we now know how to teach reading and we should be starting even earlier than preschool, but at least a preschool to um, get kids ready for this big adventure of reading and writing. Um, it, the, our, our emphasis, our emphasis is more on fixing things than preventing things. Um, so to, that's just one thing. What was the rest of the question? Well, I think I, I think I'm hearing you say, you know, you know, we have to adopt a prevention orientation rather than an intervention orientation. We need to start early, and we need to enact what we know. We know so much about the process of learning to read and learning to write. We need to put that into play everywhere. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so um, I want to I want to talk about what you're working on now because you have written a really interesting piece that I've had the privilege of 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 of. Uh, reviewing called Getting to Auto Words. And so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the premise behind that and, you know, what what we need to learn or as educators, you know, as educators, what is what are some common understandings we need to have to really advance this enacting what we know part. So talk about getting to auto words with us. Okay. Um, so one one mistake we've been making is thinking that you can learn to read with your eyes and your ears. You cannot, you can, it's just clear now that you cannot develop the brain pathways and the systems in the brain that are necessary for skilled reading, just using your eyes and your ears. The basis of it all is speech. The letters that we've invented stand for speech sounds. And um, so, 
the first thing that kids need to understand is that words they say are strings of sounds and that letters stand for those sounds. And so at the pre-K level, how do we do that? Um, how do we make it simple enough for kids to get going with that? Another mistake I think we make is thinking that you have to walk before you run in the sense that uh, skills are these isolated blocks of things. And I think we've gotten there because we wanted to assess them rather than that they were important to separate out in instruction. The skills that we think are necessary for reading, like phoneme awareness and phonics, need to be taught as kids are learning to write. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, the alphabet was first invented to represent speech, and it was represented to make speech visible. It was invented to um, enable people to leave something permanent down on a cave wall or uh, in the sand or on a rock that someone else could read. So writing came first and the alphabet was uh, used to, to make words visible and that's really how we should teach it. And so there is work and coding which I think is parallel to decoding. So for reading, we, we have a developmental sequence from decoding to, to reading. And in writing, we have a developmental sequence from encoding to writing or spelling. And um, I think both are two sides of the same breath. We take things in and we breathe out and we have to do the same with literacy they are both equal and um so another thing that i would like to change is that writing becomes an equal curriculum to reading and that we put the same effort and interest and energy into um, teaching kids to write uh, and that that's a word that it's like sight words. Sight words have so many different meanings to people that we need a more precise word. That's why I wrote about auto words, because I want to write about how the brain develops the pathways for instant word recognition. But anyway, so writing, writing means a lot of different things to people. Spelling needs a lot of different things to people. And I'm using the word encoding, which may be something that people don't use very often, but I'm hoping that it will take its place in our educational language because I think it's equal to decoding. And I think really as children learn to use the alphabet to construct words, the spoken words, as they learn to segment words and then use letters to create those words in a visible way, either with tiles or with writing, they are doing the work that they need to do to change their motor systems into new pathways that recognize individual sounds as entities in themselves. Individual sounds rather than viewing a word, a spoken word, as a single sound. 
That's the biggest and hardest thing for children to do, and they need to do it at the preschool level. And they need to do it not with a whole lot of different exercises necessarily that, that focus totally on phoneme awareness, because phoneme awareness becomes meaningful when you attach a letter to it, when you are able to understand that those sounds you're making with your mouth are represented by these letters and you can put those sounds on paper with letters, this code that's been invented to represent speech. Anyway, that's... So, you, know, you know, well, I have so many questions and there's so much, there's just so much there, Janine. So first of all, I love when you say, I love when you say two sides of the same breath. That makes it very understandable to me, you know, because we're taking in and we're putting out, right? That's great. Um, the other thing that I think is really, I'd like to drill down a little bit more on is you mentioned the motor skill, the motor aspect of forming the sound. Can you talk about why that is so important that kids are aware of that? Right, and because they're literally changing the motor system in their brain when they're doing that. Uh, I think we've long regarded phonemes as sounds. And we talk about them as sounds in the classroom and we say, um, what sound did you hear at the beginning of that word? Rather than what sound did you say at the beginning of that word? And um, it is the motor, it is the motor system that actually manipulates and changes uh, segments and blends. It is the motor system that's responsible for that and it's motor memory that helps all that stuff stick in the brain. So um, it's not, I mean, the ears are important because you have to have feedback, but the ears are really telling you whether the sound you're saying is the right sound at the beginning of that word. And it's the, it's the speaking, it's the articulation of the sound that your brain is actually using in order to be phoneme aware. Okay, so let's let's back up here because it feels to me like you're talking about two things that are kind of radical ideas in many ways. The first one is that, you know, we should go through writing to reading. Mm -hmm. I wanna ask you in a minute. Well, at, least, at, least at, at least at the very beginning, at the very beginning, I'm talking about that. Why, why do you think we've, We've not done that. We've not known it. Why have we oh, not? Well. Why have we not done? Why have we not done that? Why? Why have we always gone from, you know, the kind of the, the opposite direction? Because I think we think reading is so important. It like it, and and that writing is less important. As adults, we see ourselves reading much more than we see ourselves writing. But at the very early stages when the kids are learning this code, I think that it's more meaningful for them to be able to create and construct words from their own spoken words. And the way we've been teaching reading by recognizing uh, the visual, visual appearance of a word is not programming in the right brain systems. And it's also an imperfect way to remember the word and it's also, it's not empowering because the kids depend on somebody else to tell them what that word is in the first place. And when you teach them the code and they can encode or decode 
a spoken word, um, they are doing it on their own. And they're saying, oh, I can do this by myself. And it's very empowering. So, very empowering. Yeah, I always, I always liken it to we're teaching kids to fish rather than giving them fish. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but that um, but that I just don't think that's anything we just don't see that, you know, we see most of the time, you know, we we really focus on reading. And then writing is something that comes after or later or less imp of less importance. Um, mm -hmm. The other the other idea that I think you've presented here that's a little radical is, you know, instead of saying what sound do you hear? What sound do you say? Are you saying what do you, what sound do you say? But that makes so much sense, Janine, because you're talking about how the motor system is the conduit to the motor memory. Is that what I'm, is that my understanding? Am I understanding that? Yes, yes, I think. And I try to explain in that paper that when you say the word cat, you are activating all these um, associations with cat, like meow and purr and fur and so on. And that's really um, a cat speech network. But when you learn to encode and decode the word cat, you are you have developed a different system that needs to be attached to the cat speech system. So you're learning, you've learned a cat read write system, and that network needs to be linked to the cat speech network. And it's the motor system that activates all that. So we even have Meg. Uh, Meg research that shows that um, the motor system is activated even before you recognize a word, uh, and and certainly a lot of, of um, experiments with um, Meg and other uh, imaging systems have shown that the speech system is active when you're reading. It's, there's no question about it. So why is that? It's because speech is is the generator. And Janine, I want to I want to make sure to include a link to your book, uh, Making Speech Visible, because that's really where this is. And I'll put this in the show notes. I'll put a link for our um, for our listeners in the show notes, because that's really there yeah. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. That's really where you lay out in more detail. It is. It is. Yeah, and. Like with everything, your ideas change over time. So um, it probably needs a new edition. But um, anyway, it's uh, it's got all, all of that in there. Yeah, awesome. So so let's go back to getting to auto words. Um, one of the things I and I'll I'll make I'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Um, one of the things I like about it is that you make a, a really nice analogy between learning to read and write and and a car, driving a car right well i say that i say that learning to read and write with just your eyes and your ears is like driving a car without a motor and um speech is the motor for reading and writing and so i go on from there to explain how the brain establishes these systems that will <clears throat> will enable the orthographic mapping that we're all talking about uh, that uh, allows us to instantly recognize words 
And to get there, you have to have automatic phoneme awareness. So that is like um, the most important thing for early readers and writers in pre-K kindergarten, that they understand that the words they're saying, they're speaking, what their mouth is doing when they make those sounds, they don't need to know the muscles that they're using. They don't need, to, I think it's helpful for them to know that some words have voices, that some sounds have voices and some don't have voices and they can feel that. But, but that's really to point, point their attention to what their mouth is doing. And um, as soon as their attention goes to that place and they recognize that they're making different sounds with their mouths, and they can link letters to those sounds, they're on their way. That's the biggest hurdle in those early grades, pre-K and K. It's, it's really, Janine, it's, it's the big aha, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. You know, you, you have, um, you know, when I think about the, what you've told us so far, you know, about your life and beginning your teaching career, um, people that influenced you, the civil rights movement, your research, um, your nonprofit, your software development, um, the books you've written. What have been, what would you characterize as some of the greatest learnings from your career and from your life? What are some of the greatest learnings that you have? Oh boy. Well, the first thing I had to learn as a 19-year-old and when I made that decision to stay in Ramallah was that I am in charge of my life. And I, I decided then that I really wanted to take that seriously. <laughs> and that this is the only one we've got. So um, that, I think that was the first big learning experience. Um, what was the question? People or um, moments of change? Um, I think a moment of change was uh, deciding to leave UC San Francisco and strike out on my own, which was very scary. <laughs> yeah, it was very scary because the institution itself is a blanket, you know, as a safety blanket. And yet, I didn't feel like I was getting where I wanted to go with that. I didn't feel like I was making progress toward helping children to read. And that's really what I wanted to do. Um, so that was a big decision. Um, of course, all the decisions that I've made with Matt uh, over the years, lots of adventures we've had together um, have been learning experiences, how to survive in the wilderness, how to survive on a boat in the middle of, and how important it is for kids to understand how families have to work together. You know, that going out and mowing the lawn is one thing, but it's not, it's not uh, something that shows kids the importance of how families have to work together and then gives them a role in the family. Um, I don't know. Ask me another. <laughs> uh, this is great. No, I'm, I mean, I'm just making notes. I mean, basically, 
you know, you talked about agency. You know, I'm in charge of my life. You talked about vision. It's important to have a vision and follow that even if it's scary, like, you know, like you did. You talked about being adventurous and working together and continuing to learn. These are all wonderful things that you've learned in your journey, Janine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks. We know, you know, we it feels like we know a lot about how kids learn to read and write, about how the process that they go through and how we can best teach that. Um, what's what's standing in our way from realizing that vision of of all children reading and writing? What's standing in our way? Well, of course, it's multiple um, things, but one big thing is teacher training. And I think, uh, you know, teachers are not, I, I'm, I'm hearing teachers say, why didn't anybody tell me this stuff? <laughs> and um, when we talk about the science of reading or something like that, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm thinking right now of the fact that uh, teachers need a different way of um, being trained and that uh, teachers uh, Margaret said the other day teachers don't have time to read books or read papers or read manuals and learn new curriculum and so on if we could this is this is a vision for the future if we could um, put teacher training into small um, bites of video showing them modeling a teacher's modeling good practices in a systematic way as a curriculum not just hit or miss here and there but in a systematic way so that they could see particularly pre-k teachers and teachers that are people that are going into daycare there's going to be a huge influx of federal money if this infrastructure goes through for pre-k and and um, child care and who's going to be the ones to to be the teachers in those situations and how can parents learn to um, help their kids at home when they can't go to school or be in person-to-person -person situations so if we had video available on the internet in curricular chunks so that teachers could look at a five minute video and then say, okay, I'm going to try that in my class tomorrow and I'm going to do it my way, but this is what I'm going to do. And then see what comes next so that kids can go from simple, like from learning one sound to uh, link with a, a, a letter rather than a whole bunch of different sounds, like starting with uh, capital letters because those are easier to write. Uh, like starting with um, just the uppercase instead of trying to learn two different shapes at the same time. I don't know. These are all these are all very, uh, as you say, radical ideas. But I think um, I hope to stimulate new thinking about how to start kids out and also how to link a writing curriculum to a reading curriculum because we don't really do that. They're not linked in any way, and they could be. So that's what I want to do. <laughs> I love your I love your vision, and and I think what you're saying is, you know, when you when you said, why did anyone t ever tell me this? I think about I think sometimes about our struggling readers 
who finally get a very systematic, explicit approach, like you were just talking about, you know, going from least complex to more complex, when somebody teaches them that these are sounds that map to print, and this is how they, this is the big aha, many of our, our children say, well, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? I know. I worked with a fifth grader once. It was back in the days when oh, California was totally whole language. And if you spoke the word phonics, teachers would just frown at you, practically throw tomatoes at you. It was just, it was horrible. And um, I worked with this fifth grader and I said, okay, let's write the word fantastic. And as she said, I don't know how to spell that. How do you spell it? And I said, we'll start with the first sound. What do you mean? What do you mean? What's the first sound? Oh, oh, you mean a letter stands for a sound? Nobody ever told me that. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think all of us who've taught have had experiences like that where it was, and I always, you know, I, I came up as a whole language teacher and I really realize now that I, I didn't get to the point, right? And the kids are kind of like, when we teach them how the whole thing works, they're like, well, you're getting to the point. Now I'm, now you got me, you know? <laughs> you know? But, but then we as teachers ask the same question, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? You know, when we think about that explicit instruction, it's like, why didn't I learn this? And, and I do think I, what I see, and I know you agree with me on this, Janine, is a lot of us feel guilt around that. We feel, you know, that we didn't serve our students well, but we've got to, you know, there's no shame, there's no blame. We just have to take this knowledge exactly. and embrace it. And then people like you and people like the Reading League, you know, how are we supporting teachers, whether it's through those explicit videos that you're talking about, whether it's through, you know, long-term professional development or coaching or whatever, how do we, you know, make up for all that, all of this that we did just simply did not know? You know, how do we, how do we write the ship, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if a curriculum um, was available on the internet that parents could use, like SIBs could use, um, we could have a literacy revolution. We could, we could, we need to make it simple. We need to put it into short bites and, um, and make it easy, make it easy. Yeah. I think you're a, the perfect person to lead that revolution, Janine, I'm just saying. <laughs> so what, what are you working on right now? Um, I'm working on, uh, I'm, I'm going to be starting a project in Mississippi. I've been going back to Mississippi a lot since uh, 2017. Uh, and um, I'll be starting a, a project with Kelly Baker, Baker uh, Kelly Butler at um, the Barksdale Reading Institute. We have some pre-K classes in Greenville and uh, also in Jackson, and we're going to use an encoding curriculum. Um, another thing about encoding, uh, or to make things simple, is what Linnea Airy did with embedding letters into pictures that call to mind both the sound and the shape of the letter. So, Rather than just giving kids this um, shape that doesn't have anything to link it uh, to uh, in the brain, if you if you if you make the fox a, a picture of a fox and then make put the shape of the letter into the picture, they think fox, they think 
they think they see the shape of the fox and it all goes together or links together. Um, so we can make things a lot more efficient. I think um, I think there's a lot of ways that um, we spend a lot of time doing activities with kids that aren't that don't get right to the point of it all. Get to the point. Yeah. Why didn't you tell me this, um, Janine? Is this is this a pilot or is this a um, is this, this a? This will be kind of a pilot. It's um, I did write a grant to NICHT to do this. Um, but I didn't get the grant that I have gotten five before and they're very competitive and very difficult to get and I just didn't get this one. Um, but um, it will be, uh, it will give me an opportunity to collect these video bits and try to create a curriculum from that. So that's, that's my object in doing it. It will be a research project. There will be control classes. And we'll see how the kids who do encoding, uh, whether they do better than kids who are doing business as usual. Um, but uh, I, I also want to collect the videos and try to put together a curriculum like this. And I will put together a draft using uh, videos that I've already gotten and create a few um, here in my lab here um, in order to to, to experiment with this encoding in, in curriculum in these classes in Mississippi. Janine, um, has that has that started, or are you are you going to start it this this school year? I'll be going back probably in um, September, October, and we'll work things out with Kelly and um, look for personnel. We already have two people to honcho these two projects, and. Um, but we'll need other personnel and so on. So we'll work on that and we'll start the project in um, January, go from January to June. Well, we are going to be really looking forward to, to hearing how that goes, Janine. That sounds like yeah, a really too. exciting, really, well, what you're doing is you're kind of putting your vision into play and, and testing that out. And um, that will be real, I think that'll be really, um, just it'll be a wonder. It'll be wonderful to watch the process, and then yes. to see the results. Yeah. yeah. Since I didn't get the grant, I'm actually going to be funding this myself. I'm going to be using money that I get from Matt's. My husband died a year ago. My wonderful photojournalist husband, and he left behind an archive, uh, an incredible archive of vintage prints and um, all kinds of. Uh, exhibitions that he put together and uh, if I sell those I will use that money because we both felt very strongly about education and I feel like this would be a way to carry on his vision of the most radical thing we can do besides getting into the streets is to to provide an adequate and just and equal opportunity for education for all children. So um, then, uh, but I would love to get some foundation support. So if you have any ideas about that, let me know. <laughs> well, you know what? We're going to broadcast this podcast out. And, you know, you never know who might listen and who might share your vision, Janine. So, so we'll, we'll be getting this out and people will know about your project and about your work. And, and what a wonderful tribute to Matt. What a wonderful, respectful way to honor Matt. Yeah. Yeah. So Janine, what, um, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'm out on my screen porch and 
one of my chickens has just escaped. She's learned how to fly. <laughs> she's, she's up on the fence. No way. Oh my gosh. So your chicken, your chicken has agency. Your chicken yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and your, yeah, your chicken's radical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go back. <laughs> so what, gee, what gives you great joy and what propels you to jump out of bed every day? Oh, this work, this work. Um, also, what, a, okay, when I have a wonderful garden, I have, I have in a, in a, just a regular 60 by 100 plot of land and a house outside of uh, the edges of San Rafael. I have 20 fruit trees and a whole lot of vegetables. And what I like to do first thing in the morning is go out and stand in front of a, an incredible tomato plant that I have with sun gold, little cherry tomatoes and sit there because that's the plant that gets the first light of the day. And the sun is on my back and I pick, <laughs> I pick little yellow tomatoes and plop them in my mouth. Uh, I think that's what we need to do. Uh oh, now I've got two children. Two, <laughs> two chickens escaping. Um, I think that's what we need to do. We need to enjoy every moment and have, have good things to look forward to every day. Um, I'm 84 years old and uh, I appreciate every day. It's, 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 a, it's, it's an honor and a privilege to enjoy this life. That's beautiful. Thank you for that, Janine. Now, um, I was going to ask you some, some kind of closing questions that I ask all of our guests, but do you need to go get your chickens? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm glaring at, I'm glaring at them. And they're, and they're looking down. They're, they're looking down at the other side of the, <laughs> it's okay. All right. So I'm going to ask you these kind of closing questions that we ask everybody. So who was your favorite teacher growing up and why? Oh, I guess, I guess, um, I guess my first grade, I, I went to a girl's school in Berkeley. My, my, my mother taught there. So of course she was my favorite teacher. She taught French, but um, my, my first grade teacher taught both for, now there's three of them up there. Um, <laughs> uh, she taught first through fourth grade. So I was with her a lot. And that's one of the reasons I grew to love her, I'm sure. But I remember having green um, blackboards around the class and we would stand and we would practice writing and we would do a lot of writing. And I think um, I probably got my first impulses from her. So what was her name? Mrs. Wallace. Thank you, Mrs. Wallace. What, um, what is a favorite book, either as a child or as an adult? Oh, that's a hard, I like It doesn't some. have to be the favorite book. It can be, just be one of your favorite books. Um, I'm rereading a book right now that I read some time ago. It's called The Swerve, and it's by Stephen Greenblatt. It's an extraordinary book. It's so very well written. If you read the introduction, you are definitely hooked. She, he is talking about... Um, He's talking about Lucretius, who lived 2,000 years ago and wrote a book uh, called On the Nature of Things. 
And the story that Greenblatt weaves is about a book hunter who discovers this book that's been hidden away. But Lucretius was so advanced for his time in a culture that believed in demons and gods and magical thinking and so on. He was talking about the world being created of random atoms moving randomly in space. And he used the word atom. He talked about the fact that um, it's enough to be uh, appreciative of life and live an ethical life without worrying about heaven or hell or what, what may come after. It was a very radical book. And of course, it got buried away for thousands of years. And, but, the, but the reason the book is that Greenblatt's book is called The Swerve is because it, refurst, it resurfaced at the beginning of the Renaissance and was an influence of going from dark ages to the Renaissance because it was widely, it came out of this hidden existence and was right, widely read and led to all the creative energy and spontaneity of the Renaissance. So uh, it's, it's, oh, that a, sounds fascinating. It's a very interesting book. Wow. I'll definitely list that in the show notes so that listeners can <laughs> find that. So, um, so is that, is that what you're reading right now? Yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. I'm rereading it. Yeah. It's, there's so much to learn. This guy is so, um, he's, he's so well uh, informed about the history and art and books and so on. There's, there's another book that I'm rereading. It's called um, the, Wor the, the World of the Written, the Written World. The Written World. And it's about the history of writing and the major writings that have happened in different cultures over time. It's very interesting. Sounds so fascinating. Um, and I'll put, a, I'll put a link to that one as well. So um, Janine, what do you have on your desk that symbolizes you or is dear to you? Oh, okay. I don't think you can probably see this, but it's a glass marble that was made by my daughter, who is a glass artist, among many other things. And the glass itself is a is a magnet is a lens that magnifies a vortex inside. I don't know if you can see it at all. But there's a white stripe inside that's part of the vortex of stripes that go down to infinity inside. That white stripe is Matt's ashes. And and that's that's one of the ways that I remember my wonderful husband. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm so glad I could see that. Thank you. And my last question to Eugenie is what are your greatest hopes for today's children? Oh, I want that literacy revolution to happen. I want them to become uh, independent, joyful readers and writers. I think, I think that we're facing a, a dark place in our country with a lot of magical thinking and a lot of, um, a lot of uninformed 
thinking, a lot of disrespect for science and rational thinking. And I think it's very dangerous. And I think it's the, the, the education system needs to deal with it. Uh, and that's my hope for the future that we can we can have a swerve of our own to a new renaissance. A renaissance of, of people reading the thoughts and the and the experiences of others to inform their own frontal lobes so our frontal lobes get developed and we can see the uh, consequences of our actions anyway that, <laughs> that's a lot that's a lot to ask for that is a that is a worthy vision janine that's so, such a worthy vision well thank you so much for this time today um you know i i have had the privilege of knowing you now for a couple of years because we i'll just tell our listeners we janine and i are part of a of a small group of, of uh, people in the field. We meet on a regular basis and uh, just kind of talk about how we can create a more peaceful, you know, existence in this world of, of reading and world of literacy. You have enriched my life tremendously in the time that I've gotten to know you, Janine, and I appreciate and really value all the contributions that you have made and that you're continuing to make to teachers and children. Thank you. And to you too, I love what the Reading League is doing and I'm amazed at how much you accomplished, Laura. It's wonderful. Thank you very much. All right, we'll go get those chickens. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I will. I'm going to do some chasing. Okay. Thank you. Janine. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. A literacy revolution indeed. Janine is truly one of the most inspiring people I know who has made such important contributions to the field and just continues on with her work. So thank you, Janine. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate us and leave us your comments. We always love to hear from you. And please share this podcast with others so we can just keep this conversation going. If you haven't yet joined us, please join the Reading League. We are a league and that means all of us are in this together. We offer so many supports for you in your ongoing development and your practice. We thank you for the work you're doing every day on behalf of children in literacy. We'll see you next time.